0: Welcome to the Old Testament Reading Podcast. I'm your host, Joel, and today we're focused on Exodus chapters 1 through 6. You can find and subscribe to this podcast through Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. I've linked all of these uh, short links in the show notes if you'd like to take care of that. And if questions come up during the course of your reading, please feel free to ask them at bit.ly slash ask ot. That's bit.ly slash capital a lowercase sk hyphen capital O capital T. Uh, I love receiving the questions and the, a couple of the questions that, that I got this week were an absolute doozy, so uh, be on the lookout for those later in the show. Now Exodus 1 through6 continues the story of God's chosen people. These descendants of Jacob. you'll hear often in the Old Testament how the God Israel worships is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it's really through Jacob who was also called Israel that the Israelites trace their lineage. Now our focus in these first chapters of Exodus, it involves finding the true identity of this God worshipped by the Israelites. Put another way, is this the sort of God who is content to let the chosen people remain enslaved? Or is this the sort of God who's going to come and do something about it? You see, at the very beginning of the narrative, uh, we're brought up to speed on Joseph and and how Joseph died and how the Israelites lived in Egypt for nearly 400 years. 400 years is longer than America has existed as a nation. 400 years ago, it was 1621. Uh, That was a long time ago. So 400 years is not a short time by any means. Uh, so is this the sort of God that's going to allow for God's people to languish in bondage? Now, in contrast to much of Genesis, where we followed individuals as they pursued God, uh, in Exodus we're going to begin to follow the people of Israel. And this is going to be a theme throughout much of the rest of, of the narrative of the New Testament, or excuse me the Old Testament, where instead of following an individual, we'll be following the ups and downs of the people. Uh, It won't be the familial tribes we encountered in Genesis. Israel has become a great people, a nation. Uh, So much of the language describing Israel and Egypt is reminiscent of creation language. Uh, The Israelites were fruitful and prolific, it says at the beginning of chapter 1. They continued to multiply and grow strong, fulfilling the charge that God gave to Adam and Eve in creation. In fact, if you read the story of Exodus in its entirety... You'll see that it takes the entire story of God and human beings and casts it in miniature, beginning with creation, moving to subjugation to evil and sin before a redeemer chosen by God as God's mouthpiece appears in order to liberate God's people from slavery, bringing them through the wilderness to the promised land. This has been the story of God and of human beings from the get-go. And Exodus, we see it uh, cast onto the national stage with a given people. Uh, So be on the lookout for um, allusions to the rest of, of, of the story of salvation in the book of Exodus. Now we begin in Exodus with the evil Pharaoh, whose plan to kill all the Hebrew baby boys is stymied by the heroic actions of Shifra and Puah. Now I want to say those names again. This is Shifra and Puah because if you have read over those names without thanking God for their actions, please do so now. These women played an essential, often overlooked part in salvation history. They showed the Israelites standing up to tyrants in a non-violent manner was possible. I don't know whether they were the equivalent of our American Rosa Parks, um, but they were folks who took a stand at great risk to themselves, uh, and, and God blessed them. And, and were it not for them, we may not have a Moses in this story. Now, as Moses is born, uh, his mother puts him in a basket. And the Hebrew word for basket here is actually ark. It's the same word that's used in the story of Noah. In fact, Moses' placement in the Nile intentionally mirrors the story of the flood. The waters of the Nile, uh, after all, had consumed many Hebrew boys. And God preserved Moses' life here by means of a miniature ark. Through this act of courage that we see from Moses' brother and then later Moses' sister. Moses is adopted by Pharaoh's daughter and is raised as a prince. However, his mother was able to nurse him growing up uh, and and was paid to do so. Perhaps she even taught him Hebrew as his first language. However, unlike the story of uh, the Ten Commandments, the Charlton Heston film, the author of Exodus isn't interested in recounting Moses' life in Egypt we're immediately taken to a scene right after Moses' adoption, where an adult Moses kills an Egyptian taskmaster for beating a Hebrew slave. Now, whether Moses identified as a Hebrew at this point or not, or whether he just uh, was angry at seeing justice perverted in that way, regardless, we are already seeing... Moses' interest in justice being done. And, and this is emblematic of Moses' story. He will become the great lawgiver for the people of Israel. So we skip immediately from this story uh, after Moses realizes he's been found out to Moses coming to a well after being exiled from Egypt. Um, and Moses comes to this well in a, a country called Midian. Now, much like Moses' forefathers, Moses meets his wife here. Um, And and this wife, Zipporah, and her six sisters uh, need help at the well, and so Moses defends them from a group of hostile shepherds. And Moses perhaps could have lived a life of contentment in Midian after this. Again, the the text is silent about much of this time in Midian. But God finally makes an appearance in the book of Exodus at the end of chapter 2, maybe reminding us as readers, hey, just because Moses is happy doesn't mean God's people are happy. And at the very end of chapter 2, there are four verbs strung together, one after the other. God hears, God remembers, God sees, and God knows. This is the kind of God that has chosen Israel. This is the kind of God who will redeem the people. Moses know this God yet? It's difficult to say with any certainty, but as he tends his flocks deep within the desert, he comes face to face with the God of Israel. At the burning bush, God self-reveals to Moses, giving Moses God's personal, divine name. This name, which is four letters in the Hebrew, Y-H-W-H, Yod-Heh-Vav-Heh, uh, it's generated a ton of discussion. Uh, initially, it's given as the Hebrew phrase, eyye Asher eyye, I am who I am. Or I will be who I will be. Or I am the one who causes to be. There's all sorts of ways of interpreting this name. And while God has answered Moses' question, strictly speaking... God's answer generated more questions than it answered. By by revealing something about who God is, God has caused Moses to wonder still more about who God is. And so frequently, this is the way it works with God, right? Instead of uh, quenching our thirst when God comes closer, God's presence causes us to yearn for more. This is the kind of God who has chosen Israel, and it's for closer fellowship with this God that Moses begins preparing to go face-to-face with Pharaoh, one of the most powerful people in the known world at this time. Now, one quick side note before we continue following Moses' story, you might notice different names for people and for places as you read through the book of Exodus, Royal, uh, R-E-U-E-L, and Jethro are both names for Moses' father-in-law, just as Sinai and Horeb are both names for the mountain of God. There are a bunch of different ways that folks have tried to explain this. The majority opinion among scholars today is that this is a leftover relic of the different oral traditions that were stitched together to create the written record of sacred history that's contained in scripture. Uh, Much like uh, Genesis 1 and 2, which tell the same story from different perspectives, um, there are many different perspectives that have been stitched together to give us the story of Exodus. So that's why you'll see some different names for places. Uh, It, in my mind, enriches the story. It reminds us that this was a story held sacred by um, all of the different tribes of Israel, even after the division of the monarchy that we'll get to uh, once we start reading Samuel and King's. Now we're going to skip some of the signs and wonders for now um, uh, with the staff, with the leprous hand, uh, with the water turned to blood. We're going to get plenty of time uh, to talk about the signs and wonders next week. Um, one thing I will say about the, the snake, uh, when Moses casts his staff down and it becomes a snake, God tells Moses, take your, this snake by the tail and it will become a staff again. The tail is the most dangerous place to hold a snake. Uh, you want to grab hold of a snake up toward its head so you can control where you know, those fangs are going. And so grabbing, grasping the snake by the tail betrays a ton of trust in this God who Moses has just met. Uh, so uh, I, w- I wanted to name that, that even with this small thing, Moses has to show trust in God. We're also going to cover the whole Bridegroom of Blood story at the end of our time. There was a question about that, and I want to cover all of that with that question. It's a confusing story, but we'll get to it, I promise. So after reuniting with his brother Aaron, Moses comes before Pharaoh. In this first interaction, the the Hebrew Moses uses isn't respectful at all. It's it's pretty commanding, pretty insistent. Not at all how someone would talk with a king. So not only is Moses' request something that Pharaoh is leery of, but the way Moses asks his request does not win friends and influence people, as it were. (laughs) And unsurprisingly, Pharaoh doesn't grant Moses' request. You see, in Egypt's understanding, Pharaoh was essentially a god. So when he says, who's the Lord that I should listen to him? Basically, what he's saying is like, I've never heard of this god. I don't have lunch with him like I do the other gods. And so you're making him up. He has no power over me. But Pharaoh goes further. Taking Moses' request as an affront, he ups the ante Forcing the Israelites to make bricks without straw or bricks without chaff, depending on what translation you're using. Uh, I've linked an article in the show notes describing why that was such a big deal. In effect, what Pharaoh was doing was preventing the Israelites from even having a chance at success in making bricks. By withholding straw or chaff, the bricks made were uh, fragile. They were ugly. uh, they, They were not up to snuff. This was a fact not lost on the Israelite elders. And, and they complain against Aaron and against Moses for making the Israelite people odorous in Pharaoh's, Pharaoh's nostrils is, is I think the exact Hebrew translation. And I think this, this will be a theme that we can look for in the book of Exodus. Instead of trusting that God is a God who hears, who remembers, who sees, who knows, the people will regularly complain to and often against their leaders. Now, I want to name that in our modern context, there's a place for both. Right? Um, their leaders are not perfect. Um, Moses and Aaron weren't perfect, and there are going to be times when leaders, whether in your church whether in your organization, whatever it looks like, leaders are going to need some feedback. And it's good and right uh, for you to offer feedback. I think it's uh, Brené Brown who says that, that giving your feedback is one of the most generous things and kindest things you can do for an individual. And if the leader is good, the leader will receive your feedback and, and may not do anything about it immediately. Uh, the leader may need to enter a process of discernment about what to do with that feedback. But if we simply go to leaders noting problems and saying, hey, here's a problem, and we don't do the difficult work of helping the leader, you know, helping to suggest possible solutions to the leader, if we don't do the hard work of working on those problems ourselves through prayer or other action, well, we miss an opportunity to better our institutions and ourselves. And, and frankly, it's, it's just a better way to approach someone who is in leadership to be able to say, I am bought into this organization enough that it's not just important for me to nitpick about the issues. It's also important to me to begin to brainstorm ways of dealing with the issues If you bring not only a problem, but also a potential solution to a leader, that leader is going to be a lot more likely to take on that task because you've done some of the work for them um, and you've shown that you're bought in. Now, God's people uh, will regularly will, will see a bunch of wilderness complainings, you know, wilderness murmurings, depending on your translation, and we'll see how they don't take on the hard work of understanding themselves to be a nation of priests. And instead, they go to Moses and Aaron and say, you need to fix this. It's not the way uh, to, to be able to have a healthy organization or a healthy nation. Uh, but enough about that. Let's, let's get into chapter 6. So in chapter 6, Moses and God have a heart-to-heart. And this is interrupted, uh, this heart-to-heart, by a brief genealogy of Moses and Aaron. In Scripture, genealogies uh, tend to mark breakpoints or inflection points in the narrative. Uh, sometimes they're used to start a narrative, um, but we see, for example, at the end of the flood narrative um, and the, after the Tower of Babel, we get a genealogy before the call of Abram. And at the end of, of Abraham's life, we get a genealogy before the spotlight shift to Isaac and so on and so forth. Um, and, and this particular genealogy in Exodus is the calm before the storm of plagues that God's going to unleash upon Egypt. The genealogy is sandwiched between Moses saying twice that he is a man of uncircumcised lips. Now this loaded phrase carries multiple meanings. Uh, Moses feels inadequate as an orator, just like he told God in Exodus uh, 3 and 4. Moses feels unprepared for what he needs to do. I mean, he's going up against Pharaoh for heaven's sake. And Moses isn't sure whether he's fully consecrated for the task at hand. As you remember, circumcision was a way of people sanctifying themselves before God, and there's an echo of the strange Bridegroom of Blood story here. But when we ask ourselves, who is this God Moses serves? We need to remember, this is not a God who calls the equipped, but a God who equips the called. God's call on our lives is unconditional. Moses may not feel fully prepared for what God is calling him to do. And that's a good thing, because it forces him to rely upon God. The God we serve brings Moses and us into situations we're not fully prepared for, so that we can experience the liberating power of God's love for us, as God equips us beyond what we believed ourselves to be capable of doing. This is the God we serve, and this is the God who will liberate the people of Israel from bondage. If you never feel uncomfortable, if you never feel like God is calling you to an uncomfortable place, it may be that you're not listening to God as much as, as, as you ought to. It's easy to believe that God is calling us to lives of comfort, and I wish sometimes that were true, but God wants us to grow and to be shaped more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. And that's not done always through comfortable means. Liberation, after all, takes work. There were two questions that came through in the Google Form uh, for this week, both from Dave C. Um, and, and the first question Dave asked was, at the end of chapter 3 in, Genesis, uh, excuse me, in Exodus, God tells Moses to plunder Egypt. Can you reconcile that for me? Later in the book, we know that we will have a command about stealing. Yeah, so what Dave's referring to is uh, in Exodus 20, uh, we'll get a command, the eighth commandment, uh, you shall not steal. Um, And at the end of chapter 3, God promises Moses that they will plunder the Egyptians uh, when they leave. They will despoil the Egyptians, some translations have. And the early interpreters of the Torah had some concerns about this also, because this promise seems to run counter to the Ten Commandments. Additionally, there's, there's an ethical issue here. True liberation isn't just about flipping the power dynamic and putting the oppressed in the role of the oppressor and the oppressor in the role of the oppressed. Uh, Egypt uh, is not going to be subjugated by Israel, just as Israel was subjugated by Egypt, in other words. What God is working out through Israel is true freedom, true liberation from Egypt. Now, some folks will argue that the plundering of Egypt served as the reparations for the Israelites' lost wages as slaves. Others say that when the Egyptians give the Israelites their goods, it isn't theft, because they're giving them to the Israelites sort of as a going-away gift. Uh, they offer them willingly. Um, now, for multiple reasons, I think I would side a little bit more with the first interpretation, supposing that God's promising a form of reparations, because uh, the Egyptians have been uh, stealing wages from the Israelites by forcing the Israelites to work as slaves. Um I hope that answers your first question, Dave, and and then your second question here, and it's a question many of us probably had when reading. Can you explain what exactly happened in Exodus 4, 24 through 26? That event seems completely disjointed from the rest of the chapter. Suddenly, Moses is in a lodge, but then in the next few verses, he's in the desert. And why would the Lord show up to kill him? I must be misunderstanding this. Yeah, this is one of the uh, most difficult passages in Exodus. Um, Notoriously difficult to understand. It seems to come out of nowhere. The lodge that Moses and his family are staying in may have been a way station uh, in the desert. Uh, I'm thinking of that uh, uh, place that Anna goes in in uh, the movie Frozen. Uh, She goes into that place that's just selling a few goods uh, and acts as a way station for her on her way up to find Elsa. Uh, I'm imagining something like that. That could be it. But the more difficult part of the the passage is why on earth would God commission Moses then suddenly appear with the aim of killing him? Well, when I was talking with my mom earlier this week, right after she had read this portion, she was looking into some interpretations of it. And one she came across suggested, first, don't lose this sense of disorientation with the passage, regardless of how you explain it. There are ways that we've come up with to try and suggest what might be going on. But remember... God can be very disorienting. And the God that we see in Exodus is simultaneously near and and also this sort of shadow um, that that sneaks up on you and and can, can really do some damage. So... Some ideas for trying to understand what's going on. Uh, One idea is Moses might not have fully bought in on Hebrew practices, having grown up as an Egyptian and then taking on some of the identity of the Midianites, and therefore maybe didn't circumcise his son when he should have. Second idea is God might be testing the commitment of Moses' family, as we see it's Zipporah who intercedes and circumcises their son. A third option, and and this is not um, independent of the other two, uh, God may be offering a preview of Passover, painting a vivid picture of the lengths a parent will go to protect a child just as God's going to go to protect Israel. I think the confusion in the passage is still there. Um, It's a confusing passage. uh, But I think that really one of the things it's getting at is how important buy-in is for a leader's family at home. If Zipporah is not bought into Moses' mission, Moses' mission will fail. Uh, And this shows that Zipporah is bought in. That's all for Exodus 1-6. to uh, Next week, we're going to read chapters 7-12. through And over the next few weeks, I want you to be on the lookout if you've got your reading plan with you because we're going to be jumping over chapters uh, that contain laws and genealogies throughout uh, the second half of Exodus and some of Numbers and Leviticus so that we can focus strictly on the narrative. I'll give you all another heads up as we get closer. But for now, may God bless you in your reading of Scripture.